The economy is getting back underway, and with it, the world of pro sports. Stay ahead of the curve with the unparalleled tools of two world-class news desks, covering developments across finance, economics, technology, and sports. Subscribe to Bloomberg.com, and if you are not already a The Athletic subscriber, for a limited time, receive a complimentary subscription to The Athletic. Go to Bloomberg.com slash subscribe to sign up today. Welcome back to the Forum Club Playoff Edition. This is Bill Oram, and I'm joined this week by a very, very special guest, The Athletic's excellent Portland Trailblazers beat writer, Jason Quick. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing the show. Thanks, William. So, uh, Jason, this is a series, Portland and the Lakers, that we have been anticipating for some time. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, question of whether Portland was going to be even make it if they were going to emerge in the seeding round. We all know how that went. And now uh, it is it is Wednesday. We're recording this and the Lakers find themselves in a 1-0 hole to the eight seeded Blazers. And I just want to start with something that happened because I got I got killed on Twitter for tweeting about basically the narrative that had emerged coming into this series in some circles of why the Lakers were not really at risk of uh, being upset by the Blazers. Because everything we heard coming into this series was that the Blazers would look tired. They didn't. We were told that the Lakers shots would start falling. They didn't. We were told Dame would be out of gas. He wasn't. And we told that the Blazers defense was going to pave the way to great success for the Lakers offense, which obviously also did not happen. Where do you stand on this series now that the Blazers have drawn first blood? And how much more do you believe, if you do, that they could actually win this series. Well, I think game one gave kind of credence to the to the notion that it's tough to flip a switch. You know, the Lakers spent much of the seeding games kind of resting and experimenting with people, and the Blazers had to play at a very high intensity and as if their their season was on the line because it was. And so I thought you could see that the Blazers were a little more sharp and in crunch time they came through and the Lakers didn't. And the Blazers, that, that's the thing about this is what their 10th game in Orlando in all 10 games have gone down to the final minutes of the fourth quarter where it's the game was still undecided. And I think, you know, Dame talked about they're gaining more confidence because each night they've been able to do it. Uh, you know, they're eight and two since they've been in Orlando. And one of their losses was Dame's you know, famous failure of missing the two free throws with 18 seconds left. And we've seen what that has done. So I think it it really brought into focus that the Blazers have been so intunely focused and playing in high pressure situations for the greater part of two weeks now. And the Lakers always, it seemed like they always were like, that's all right. We're going to flip a switch. We're going to be, we're going to be good once the playoffs come. So the Lakers shot just five of 32 from three. They were the worst three point shooting team in the bubble. Were you surprised to see those shots not falling for the Lakers? Because similarly, the Blazers have one of the worst perimeter defenses in the league. They give up the second best three-point shooting percentage in the entire league to opponents. So the shots yeah. were there. Were you surprised to see Danny Green and Catavius Caldwell-Pope going, you know, basically over? Yeah, I mean, because a lot of those shots were wide open. And, you know, Blazer fans can attest to this. that It seems like opponents were making everything that they shot against the Blazers. And it's interesting. Terry Stotts said their analytics team has been telling them that 
you know, really their defense hasn't been that bad. It's just that other teams are hitting at a phenomenal rates. So they fell a little snake bit in terms of their three-point defense in the bubble. So maybe that all kind of just came back to them last night with the Lakers. But I think they have to be concerned about how many of those shots were wide open. I mean, Danny Green uh, in particular comes up that he had a lot of wide open shots. And, you know, I wrote about the Blazers having trust in each other and, and trusting each other in big moments, you know, Gary Trent Jr. hit a big three after hitting the side of the backboard, and Melo hit a big three after struggling all night. And there was a play late where LeBron kind of drove under the basket, and he had Danny Green wide open in the corner, and he ended up passing to Caruso on the wing. And I I think that was a level of LeBron going, huh, I don't think Danny has it. You know, not trusting him in that moment. So it'll be interesting to see how they approach it in game two, how they handle their threes and whether or not making some will kind of get them going. Yeah, it hasn't really happened yet in the bubble, particularly when they've been at full strength. You and I talked uh, a couple of weeks ago privately about if this series came to fruition, that all the pressure would be on the Lakers because you've got a Blazers team that is coming in with, you know, I think essentially nothing to lose. Not supposed to have been in this situation. No one expects them to win. That's obviously gained some momentum, obviously, a trendy pick to to upset a Lakers team that was pretty uninspiring during during the seeding rounds. But now that it's a uh, an 0-1 hole for the Lakers, you can certainly see that pressure mounting where, you know, you've got another game. You haven't done anything to cure the ills that have plagued you since you've been back playing games again. And now, I mean, I don't know that anything can be a must win too, too early in a, in a first round series. But if you're, if you're the Lakers and you're looking at this as you either have to find a way to slow down the Blazers offense, which by the way, was not particularly good in game one. They scored a hundred points. I mean, this is a team that averaged 124 points in this, in the seeding round. You held that Blazers team to a hundred points. You have to assume that they're going to have games in this series where they get the 125, 130, 140 points on the board um, and you didn't take advantage. But if something like that happens in game two, or if Dame has one of his huge games in game two, suddenly you're in an 0-2 hole. And this is not suddenly just the plucky Blazers stealing game one and, and forcing the Lakers to take a step back and reconsider some things. It is actually an, a real risk of an, of an upset. What adjustments do you think that the Blazers will try to make to preempt what the Lakers are going to try to do to obviously keep that those offensive numbers down for the Blazers, but also get their own up. I mean, it, it seems like it should be as simple as, as knocking down shots, but so far this team hasn't shown that they're capable of doing it. Well, I think one of the interesting developments for the Blazers was for the first time since they've been in Orlando, the pairing of Yusuf Nurkic and Hassan Whiteside was productive. It worked. Hassan was a game changer with five blocks. He rebounded. That's the one concern I think the Blazers really left game one with was their rebounding. The Lakers had 17 offensive rebounds, just a ton. They didn't necessarily convert as many of those as they would like, but still Portland is concerned about that. It hurt them in in the Brooklyn game, in the seeding games as well, their offensive rebounding or their defensive rebounding. So to me, that's going to be the real interesting thing is is how much Stotts goes back to that Whiteside-Nurkic pairing. You know, Whiteside played 26 minutes in the other games uh, leading up to game one. He was only averaging 16 minutes a game. So I would tend to believe that he'll go more heavily towards Hassan because it worked. But the Blazers want to take away those offensive rebounds because that was just brutal for them to, to get a stop. Their defense is so suspect to begin with, and you get a stop but you can't complete the stop because you can't get a rebound. That can be really debilitating. But to go back to your original point, there is no question 
the Lakers are under enormous amount of pressure right now. Enormous. And and they had all the pressure before game one, but you lose game one and not just lose, but the way they looked, you know, they did not look formidable, you know, and then LeBron and AD both missing free throws down the stretch. Those are the two guys that's supposed to carry you home. You know, that's concerning. This is supposed to be the title favorites, you know, just the pedigree of, of LeBron and, and AD and, and they did not come through. So no question, there's an enormous, enormous amount of pressure on them. And I would absolutely expect a, a bounce back game from the Lakers, given that pressure, given the leadership that they have in the locker room, the experience they have in many corners of that locker room. Not everywhere, by the way. This is not a totally experienced Lakers team. You've got a lot of true players who are either their first few playoff games or making their first playoff appearances at all. Kyle Kuzma. Alex Caruso, Contavious Caldwell-Pope only played in four playoff games in Detroit. And AD, Anthony Slater and I have talked about this on the podcast, but AD has only played now 14 playoff games in his career. That is not a vast amount of experience when you're comparing him to LeBron James, who has played 240 postseason games. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's basketball. And these guys have played a million basketball games. So to a degree, there's, you know, quote unquote, playoff basketball and playoff atmospheres. I, I just think that's different this year in uh, at the end of the day, if you're a good player, it doesn't matter how many how many playoff games you played in. You know, it seems like the day after game one now the, that the big chatter with the Lakers is they need to make a change to their starting lineup. And, and do they start Kyle Kuzma now? What, what's your sense on where they're going to go with that? I mean, the thing I would I worry about just in general, I mean, I think the, the reason it makes sense is that when you have Anthony Davis at the five, it opens things up so much more offensively. They become a much more dangerous team. And we see it more late in games that that is what the Lakers go to. And it tends to be, um, you know, highly effective. Uh, wasn't as, as, as much so last night, but we saw it in the, in the seeding games when they, when they went to it. To me, it does give them the looks they want offensively earlier. Um, they've struggled at the starts of halves, um, throughout the year. Uh, and, you know, you can, you can attribute that to, you know, starting big with with JaVale McGee, who um, last night really didn't play out of his initial uh, rotations um, in the starting lineup and then uh, and then in the second half. But um, then what do you do on the bench offensively? How are you staggering those lineups? Because Kyle Kuzma right now is the only guy off the bench who you have any confidence in in getting getting you baskets. Deion Waiters is a guy who I thought was going to be a factor for the Lakers, and I think he still will be. But it was, you know, it was 1230 last night. I'm working on my story and I just had kind of this epiphany. I was like, did Deion Waiters even play? Yeah. And, it, and you know, went back and looked and he played one minute at the end of the second quarter, um, didn't register a, a, a stat. It was not memorable at all. And that's a guy who, um, you know, the Lakers brought in with an, an expectation that he was going to be able to give them some, some offense. But the problem was that the Lakers found themselves with their backs against the wall, I felt like, you know, five minutes into the game last night. And you needed your your LeBron, and you needed your defensive lineups because anything that um, anything else was going to force the dam to break. And so, especially if you're not going to put the trust in Dion Waiters, and maybe that changes in game two and, and going on, uh, you need Kyle Kuzma coming off the bench. It's just a, it's it's not as deep of a Lakers team as we often give it credit for. I mean, they it have really a lot isn't. of really cre- they have a lot of credible players who you who d- deserve time in the NBA. But in terms of guys who, you know, you really trust with the ball in their hands and you really um, can, and can be game changers, 
it's not as deep of a team as you would think, you know, not as deep as, you know, a team like the Clippers, obviously it's a lot of guys who do their jobs pretty well, but in terms of the guys who are going to carry you across the finish line, it's LeBron, AD, Danny Green, if he's shooting it well, which he hasn't. And, and, and it, and it can be Kyle Kuzma. And, and for most of the seeding round, it was Kyle Kuzma too. So they need, they need that guy. When I look at the the Lakers and after watching them, because I, d- I didn't spend a ton of time watching them in the seeding games, <laughs> but you're right. The, this is not as deep a team as you as you think it is. And I, and I guess with Rondo and, and Bradley being out, you know, that obviously affects it. You know, when I saw that Rondo was actually shooting yesterday before the game, uh, do you think there's a chance he'll come back for game two? I think we'll learn more in the build up to game two. Um, and so maybe by the time this publishes, we'll, we will know the answer to that. But Frank Vogel said before game one that there was a temptation to throw him out there in game one. You know, obviously he didn't do it. Rondo was inactive. But this is a tough, tough cookie. And a guy who, you know, it shouldn't surprise anyone. It did surprise me, but it shouldn't have. That once he was cleared to, you know, cleared quarantine and was medically cleared to play basketball, he's not going to take two weeks to continue to rehab and get back into basketball shape. Or, you know, he wants to go, he wants to go play and win. And, you know, that's kind of the true competitor in him. So um, if his, you know, if his hand medically allows him to play and, and the Lakers say, you know, he's cleared, then you can bet he's going to be trying to throw himself into the fray. And when you look at what beat the Lakers, the history that Rondo has um, in the postseason against against Lillard, to me, it seems like you almost have to um, at least have Rondo at your disposal as, as, a, as, a, as, as an option. Now, I, I'll tell you what, if you get in another early hole against the Blazers and, and you go to Rajon Rondo off the bench, a guy who hasn't played in a game since March 10th, you know, that is, that's a, that's a bit of a roll of the dice too. But the Lakers need that secondary ball handler, that other guy who can actually create offense. I know Laker fans um, are not pleased with Rondo defensively. Um, his shot selection throughout the year has been, has been really questionable but he still has a skill that no one else on this team has. And that's the ability to create for other, for, for other players outside of LeBron James, nobody can do it at a high level um, and from, from the, from the perimeter. And so um, I think they need him. I think, I think they'll need him in game two and I think they might need him to win this series. I don't think the Blazers will play that, that poorly offensively again. I mean, it is very rare for them to shoot 39% and win. You know, this is a team that relies on their offense to carry them and, Dame was okay last night. He's played much better. CJ's played much better. Nurk should finish better around the rim. Uh, and and Mello, I thought that was probably until he hit the late shot. I thought that was probably his worst offensive game uh, since they've been in the bubble. So I think Portland feels very very good. It got away with a win, shooting thirty nine percent from the field. Yeah, and I think you know, and I think you know, the Lakers would tell you that that was a function of of, of their defense, you know, which has been one of the best in the league throughout the year. And, and I think the Lakers should feel okay about the way they, they limited that, that Blazers offense, just because in the first quarter, as you're watching the Blazers start to run away with it, you know, you're starting to think the Avery Bradley absence is even bigger than we, than we knew the way the the Blazers were getting into the paint and, and kicking. And, and, you know, you saw Contavious Caldwell Pope trying to pick Lillard up uh, full court and, and there's certainly value in getting in his way, but you never felt like he was actually challenging for the ball like like Avery Bradley would. It wasn't it wasn't that same kind of um, tenacious uh, full court pressure. I think there was like one one press in the first half that it looked like the Blazers had to really give any thought to breaking. Um, it just to me was 
you, you make him work a little bit more, which has value, but it didn't seem like you were actually giving, um, giving them the defensive intensity that you would have expected with Bradley. It was a really interesting game offensively for Portland because Portland's bread and butter is, is the Lillard Nurkic uh, pick and roll. And they really didn't hammer that too often. And in fact, I, I thought that they had Nurkic at the top of the offense initiating things. And you remember early, he got a couple backdoor uh, passes to, to Lillard for lay-ins early. And so they really had Dame working off the ball more so than usual. And I, I thought that was a an interesting game one uh, kind of wrinkle that, that Terry Stotts had is, is playing Lillard a little more off the ball, particularly early, and having Nurkic kind of initiate and quarterback that that offense. And, you know, Nurk, as everyone will find out, is a wonderful passer. I mean, he's uh, really smart. He's got a really delicate touch. So I, I thought that was really interesting early. Jason, let's pull it back a little bit. You've been covering this Blazers team for, um, I think, two decades now. And you have covered Scottie Pippen and Rasheed Wallace, Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge. And now you've obviously had... Um, the better part of a decade with Damian Lillard. And you have uh, said elsewhere um, in other interviews that that Lillard and covering him and this team has kind of given you a professional and personal spark and, and may to some degree be the reason that you are even still in the career. For Laker fans who will probably hate hearing about Damian Lillard today, <laughs> but, um, but who obviously have watched him and, and gotten to know him pretty well as an opponent over the last eight years. And, and obviously his tremendous performance on the night, the Lakers celebrated Kobe Bryant after his death. What makes him such a, a magnetic figure and such a, a, a pleasure to cover? Oh, well, he's the most impressive person and player that I've been around in professional sports. Just what he does on the on the court, everyone sees that. You know, he can erupt for 61 points. He hits, he's got a, a whole book of last second buzzer beater clutch shots. But it's the more you're around him, it's what he does off the court and the way he conducts himself, the way he interacts, the way he uplifts people that really takes hold and, and it really kind of mesmerizes you. And you can't help but be impressed by him. He's incredibly, incredibly real. He's more concerned about doing the right thing than what other people think about what he's doing, if that makes sense. But he, he is just this incredibly powerful force that uplifts other people. And and I think that's the thing that really stands out the more you're around him is, is how concerned he is about his teammates and how he wants to get the best out of them. And he's very in tune to people's body language to how they're feeling and and he just has a way of approaching them and putting his arm around guys and finding out what's making them tick and what he needs to do to to make it better and it's not all you know warm and fuzzy he he can kick a guy in the ass too um you know he was very harsh with uh Yusuf Nurkic early in his Portland career or not harsh but very upfront and honest with him and same thing with Hassan Whiteside this year uh there were times where he you know give him f-bombs on the court and say look man you got to do this what the hell are you doing guys respond to it and it's a very very powerful thing when you're around the Blazers just the way he conducts himself and the way he uh makes sure that this is a group effort it's not all about him even though he does so much on the court he makes everyone feel like they have 
a part in it. And, and really, that extends to the whole organization. I mean, he secretaries, ushers, ball boys, he includes them and they all feel an ownership in what's going on with the Blazers. And that's why it runs so deep. The love for him in Portland runs so deep. I've been covering the Blazers for 22 years and I don't know that there's ever been a Blazer, maybe Clyde Drexler, who has so passionately captured Portland's heart. And I think it's more, and I question it because sometimes, you know, you have recency bias, but I would be hard pressed to think that Clyde uh, was more involved in the community and and elicited such passion from a fan base as, as Dame does. I mean, he is, he's just the, as real as they come. There's nothing fake about him. There's nothing um, showboaty about him. He, he's just uh, a, a very real guy, and, and he's a man of the people. Jason, our colleague, Marcus Thompson, who is as Oakland as they come, wrote a story for us this week about Dame's roots and about his lifetime of being slighted and kind of wear that chip on his shoulder comes from you know obviously we saw we saw it with the the clippers giving him the bye-bye wave and and all the all the trash that went back and forth between those two sides but when you look at at this matchup where where the lakers come in as the ballyhooed western conference favorite with the the best player of a generation in lebron james who is obviously a, an MV in in the running for his his fifth mvp and comes in with kind of this huge just superiority because he's LeBron and it's the Lakers. How do you think that particular dynamic might fuel Lillard and then by extension this Blazers team? I think Dame has graduated from the motivation aspect of of, of being motivated by outside forces, you know, be it slights or if I'm reading you right, you know, you're saying, is he motivated like to take down LeBron? And is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think in essence, yeah. Early in his career, he, he got really hurt about all-star snubs and stuff of that that nature and and it really motivated him but i think now he realizes he's entered a, a different kind of level of stardom and i think he's comfortable in his in his standing in the nba as an elite point guard and so i i think now it's it's more centered on he has been really passionate about bringing a title to portland and i think he thinks they have a chance and so it, it's not about taking down LeBron. It's not about him making any sort of name for himself. It's about getting Portland that championship. And he wants to do it for Portland and do it in their grassroots way. They built this team from scratch eight years ago when Neil Olshay, the GM, Chris McGowan, the president, Terry Stotts, the coach, and Dame, they all came in at the same time in 2012, and they've kind of built this from scratch to where they are now. Seven straight playoff appearances, Western Conference Finals last year. And they've done it in a really kind of cool way. They're good people, good characters, and they value some really wholesome things, you know, being on time, treating other people right. And so that's important to him. Uh, and being loyal is important to him. So I think it's it's more that. It's the central driving force of him. He wants a title in Portland, and that's what this is about. It's not about taking down LeBron or making a name for himself or anything like that. I think he sniffs title, and he's chasing it. Bringing it back to this series, um, LeBron James had an all-time great performance. I think everyone would agree in Game 1 where he has – 20 plus points, 15 uh, assists, 15 rebounds, the first player in NBA history to do that in the postseason. Um, obviously, he didn't shoot it super well. 
uh, the Lakers lamented the number of missed assist opportunities for him post game um, with the shots that were not falling, which we've talked at length about. One of the big storylines coming into this game was that the Blazers would not really have anyone who could who could stop LeBron. And I was a little surprised that to start the game, it was Carmelo Anthony in, in that matchup. Um, LeBron did essentially do whatever he wanted and get wherever he wanted. Um, did not finish well around the rim. I still thought Carmelo moved all right, though. Okay, we'll give we'll give him some credit. We, we will give him some credit. He also uh, poked LeBron in the eye at one point, which maybe is 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 the best defense. But go ahead and expound on that then, because I think that that is going to be a matchup to watch throughout this series. Is if Portland can't find a way to contain LeBron, how much is he going to punish them, and is that ultimately the thing that would would decide this series? Yeah, I mean. Uh- they don't have someone to guard him. I mean, Carmelo, I did think he, he surprised me with how well he moved laterally. But, you know, their only other, I think they put Gary Trent Jr. on him. And uh, we saw LeBron just back him down without much effort. So I, I do think that's going to be a problem. I, I don't, I'm not so sure that it's, it's a problem they can solve. So I think, you know, it's interesting to hear all these analysts and stuff who know basketball far more than I do. You know, they're almost trying to bait LeBron into being a scorer because they feel that the Lakers are more dangerous when he starts getting other people involved. You know, because LeBron can pretty much score at will, it seems. That might be the, the way to beat them is to turn him into a scorer and and so the other people aren't playing at the top of their games. I don't know. But clearly, they don't have a way to stop him. I, I, I think he could probably get 50 if he wanted to. It was interesting to me, just the, we talked about it, but the way that the Blazers' size um, really kind of neutralized what the Lakers were trying to achieve at the rim, where you know Anthony Davis struggled. He was just 8 of 24 from the field. The Lakers had a ton of offensive rebound opportunities, but didn't convert all of those. I think you know, you'll see that probably change a little bit going forward. I think the status of Zach Collins going forward is a factor as well. Is he, where is he on the, on the return spectrum? I have no idea. I tried to kind of talk to him about it via text, and he just said, I, I I can't talk right now. He just wished to to say nothing. So I don't know where he is. And we haven't been really given much information on exactly what it is. I don't, I don't think it's a sprained ankle. They're not calling it a sprained ankle. They're saying there's inflammation on the top of his ankle and it uh, flares up when he runs. So I don't know what to make of it. I think Damian Lillard in his before game one kind of said that it, it might be two games with Zach, but no one's been really definite about it and uh maybe we'll get an update but you know i i thought winian gabriel was okay scored the first bucket scored the first bucket scored in transition that that transit that fast break dunk that he had off a long pass i don't think zach gives him that you know so certainly i think the blazers would like to have zach collins he's a very very good defender and he just fits real nicely in, in, in what they do he doesn't put up flashy stats but they would definitely, definitely like to have him back in the lineup. Well, and and this speaks again to you know the benefit of for the Blazers, the benefit of winning that game one is that they won a game without being at full strength with Zach Collins sideline. So that does give them suddenly a little more a little more flexibility. Well, Jason, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. You and I have been friends for a long time, and we've always talked about the idea of of, of having a playoff series between the Lakers and Blazers, so we could so we could do things like this and swap stories and. Um, we're doing it, not in the way we ever uh, imagined it, but <laughs> it's still a lot of fun. Uh, and, and obviously, we've got two great teams here with great charismatic stars. You know, the whole thing is going to come to a head over the next 
10 days or so. So it's going to be fun to monitor and obviously read, read your work. You mentioned your story, the culture of trust Terry Stotts has, has implemented in Portland and your work throughout the seating round on Damian Lillard is also uh, very much worth checking out. And I would be remiss, Jason Quick, if I did not remind our listeners that you and I teamed up on a project, what, three, four years ago? No, just a month and a half ago. Uh, on the 2000 Western Conference Finals between the Blazers and Lakers during a span when this was a real intense rivalry in the Western Conference and one of the most pivotal games in Lakers franchise history. Game 7, the lob, Kobe to Shaq. You and I did an oral history of that of that game, and that was a lot of fun and is, can still be found uh, on the Athletics website. So, um, Jason, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, good luck covering the rest of the series. All right, William, we'll see you. This has been the Forum Club a show about the Los Angeles Lakers on the Athletics Podcast Network. Thank you for listening.